The verse that I want to focus our attention on this morning is Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would bless the reading of Your Word, that You would come and make these things real to us. Uh, this topic, Father, we, we can't even comprehend unless You come and help us to understand it. So do that for us, please. In Your mercy, teach us and help us to understand Your Word that we might exalt and praise the risen Lord Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. By way of reminder, in the previous weeks we've looked at verses 24 through 26, and we studied what I called the all-inclusive necessity of suffering in the kingdom of God. We saw that when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, there are requirements for being a disciple. You must, if you would follow Him, take up your cross, deny yourself, and take up your cross and follow Him. Those are the requirements. And if you're not willing to meet the requirements, you cannot be His disciple. We also saw in verse 25, the reality of discipleship over and against any, any type of idealistic or notional concept we might have. When it comes to being a follower of Jesus, being one of His disciples, we don't get to come along and say, well, I think being a disciple is, is sort of like this. Or, or to me, it's kind of like this. Rather, Jesus lays it out very clearly. It's very simple. If you want to save your life, you want to preserve the temporal then you'll lose it. You, you can't be my disciple. But if you will, will yield yourself up for my sake, then you will have eternal life. You'll save that which is truly life. You can be my disciple. And then for the last two weeks, we looked at the rhetorical simplicity of discipleship. It all boils down to this. You follow Jesus, you have eternal life. Your soul will be with God forever. But if you do not follow Jesus... You lose your soul. You, you can't buy it back. You can't afford it. And if you should choose to, to gain the whole world, then you'll lose your soul. You have two options. Follow Jesus and live, gain the world, and die. Now as we move into verse 27, we've not left that same conversation and Jesus' topic is not different than it has been. He's still talking about citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about being a disciple. He's encouraging His followers to count the cost. Now keep in mind everything that Jesus has said up until this point so far and, and how from an earthly, temporal standpoint, 
If we were to just to read this from the perspective of the world, it looks like the proverbial ball has been put into the court of, of everybody else, not the follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you would choose not to be a disciple, then you, you don't have to deny yourself. You avoid taking up a cross. You get to gain temporal pleasures. Your life will be filled with earthly sensualities and desires. You will get that more than likely. You will preserve your life. You'll get to keep all of that. But for those who, in the words of Jesus, would come after me, would come after Jesus... The picture that he's painted so far is, is sort of morbid. It's dreary. Consider what he's conveyed so far, going all the way back to the section in verses 13 through 17. Jesus has said, in effect, Yes, I am the Messiah, and I'm going to build my church, and, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We'll have victory, but don't tell anybody. Don't say anything to anybody. And by the way, I have to die. And if you don't like that, well, you have to suffer too. You have to deny yourself. You have to reject worldly gain. You have to yield up everything and follow me, again, the one that's going to die soon. Now think of what, what would have been going through their minds as they heard all of this. As one of the other gospel writers says, he, he stated it very plainly. He begins to lay these things out very clearly. Think about what would have been going through their minds. Follow the Messiah who will die and give up your life for the Messiah who will die. Again, think about all of this in the context of Matthew's original audience as he's writing this in what I believe was probably sometime in the first century. Perhaps they lived through the time of the apostles. The apostles who were hunted and killed, tortured, martyred. Many of their church members martyred and persecuted. So they're looking at all of this around them and then they read what Jesus says. From what He said and what we know about history, the disciples were probably wondering, okay, so what's the, is there really a benefit? Is there really an advantage to following Jesus? And so we come to verse 27 and Jesus encourages them here. And I was telling the men yesterday, when I first read this, I read it from the perspective of, of mere warning. There is warning here, and we'll see that. But this is encouragement from Jesus. Here's His encouragement. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay to each person according to what He has done. That's Encouragement, And so I've titled this sermon, The Coming Judgment as Encouragement to Discipleship. The Coming Judgment as Encouragement to Discipleship. Now, I want to answer this question. Why am I focusing on judgment when the term judgment is not explicitly stated in this verse? Well, notice, he says the Son of Man is going to come. And then at the end, and He will repay. So we have the coming of the Son of Man and the repaying of each man according to what He's done. What, what is being described here in this verse is the singular event of the second coming of Christ wherein all people will be judged and repaid according 
to the verdict of their life. Now, time doesn't permit us to go in, in detail into that topic, but some of you will remember when we studied the parable of the wheat and the weeds, we talked about this two-age concept, that there is this age, and there's the age to come, and there's one singular event that separates the two. The Bible doesn't teach a chronological list of second comings where Jesus comes down, sort of down and then back up and then maybe down halfway and then back up and then down again for, for a little while and then back up again and then back down. He will come once and He will judge once and those two events are one and the same occurrence. So I'm using all of that as a background to focus in on judgment the Son of Man is going to come, and He will repay. So that being said, I want to open up this one verse under four headings. First, the certainty of the coming judgment. Then second, the manner of the coming judgment. Then thirdly, the individuality of the coming judgment. And then fourth, the basis of of the coming judgment. The certainty, the manner, the individuality, and the basis. In other words, it will happen. What's it going to be like when it does happen? To whom will it happen? And what's going to be the whole basis for the coming judgment? So first, the certainty of the coming judgment. And again, all of this is encouragement. Regardless of what we as men naturally, would like to be true, regardless of what false teachers might say, and regardless of the fact that the majority of mankind lives as if they will not be held accountable for their actions, based on the teaching of Scripture, there will most certainly be a judgment. We, we can't deny it. Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come. And in the original, the focus is on that phrase, is going to come. It's not necessarily on who's coming or what's going to happen, but the fact that it is going to happen. It is certain. In, contrary, in contrast to this idea that there, there won't be a judgment, there will be no restitution, there will be no real settling of debts, Many people would ask, well, if God is, is so sovereign, or, or if there is a God, then why does He just let evil go? Why is, is evil not addressed? Why are, are there all these bad things that are happening? Well, you're just getting ahead of Him a little bit. Just wait, and there will be. Again, imagine all that they've heard. There's probably some doubting in their minds. Okay, so the Messiah will suffer and die, and we as followers of the Messiah must suffer and die to ourselves, how can the church be victorious and the kingdom be established in light of this? The comfort comes in knowing for certain that the Son of Man will come again in judgment. All accounts will be settled someday. Now there are various Errors that were taught in, in the time of the writing of Scripture and even now that we need to address. Some would say that there will be no coming judgment. And throughout history, again, even in the times of the apostles and the writings of Scripture, there were some who said there will be no judgment. 
The Sadducees would have rejected this idea of the supernatural interjecting itself into the natural world. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, that scoffers will come in the last days, which we believe we are in, with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, Peter says, there will be people who come along and say, Where's this second coming you guys have been talking about? I mean, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and everything just seems to be carrying along just like it's always happened. So where is it? Where is this great king? And so there have always been those who taught there will be no coming judgment. Why do they teach this? Well, first, because they don't believe what Scripture says. They do not believe what God has said. And secondly, because naturally we desire that there would be no accountability See, we know how we act. And to an extent, we know our hearts. And we know what we think and what goes through our minds and how wicked we are. And so deep down inside, we would love for it to be true that there's no accountability. We're not going to have to answer for our actions. And for those who are lost, absolutely, they think, well, if I have to answer for the things I've done and the things I've said and the way I think, well, I'm doomed. And so they would just put it out of their mind and say, well, there's going to be no judgment. Another error that has been taught throughout history is this idea that this return that Jesus is talking about has already happened. This is the, the teaching, it's called full preterism. In other words, all of the prophecies that are in the Bible have already taken place, the majority of which in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. It's already happened. Jesus has already come, the judgment's already taken place. Congratulations, here we are on the new heavens, or on the new earth in the new heavens, uh, which is pretty depressing if you think about it. But Jesus is teaching contrary to both of those. He's saying the Son of Man is going to come. And we know that it's certain because first, Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come. And Jesus is God. Therefore, what Jesus says goes. It's a statement of truth. He is the truth. And so what He says is true. So we know just based on this statement alone, with a good Christology, it's going to happen. And we could stop there, but we'll continue. We know that the judgment, the coming judgment is certain because of God's justice. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says, Because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So we know of God's character, His attributes, that He is just. He is righteous. This judgment is righteous judgment. It must flow out of His character because He is a just and righteous God. This is what Abraham said when he said, Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? See, Abraham understood. Because God is just and righteous, He has to punish. Will He do something unrighteous, unjust, like punish the righteous along with the unrighteous? Of course not. He must do what is just. When he's describing his character to Moses... He says, I'm 
the Lord, the Lord. I'm uh, abounding in steadfast love and kindness. I'm merciful and, and gracious. I will uh, forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. I will give my steadfast love to thousands. But he says, but who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's because he's just. So what would be justice? It would be judgment. And so we know that the judgment is certain because of God's righteous character, His justice. We also know that the judgment is certain because of man's sinfulness. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Since God is just and righteous and man is sinful and wicked, it only makes sense that there must be a judgment to come. We also know, he says here, the Son of Man is going to come, speaking of Himself. We know that the, the certainty of the Son of Man coming in judgment is true because the judgment, the authority to judge has been given to the Son. In John chapter 5 and verse 22, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The Father has given all of the authority, all of the power to judge and execute judgment into the hands of the Son. Therefore, we know that the judgment by the coming Son of Man is certain. He will be the one who carries out the judgment. Contrary to what people say when they, when they read the Gospels and they say, well, look how Jesus was so compassionate and caring and loving and gracious. That's how God is. You see? And we would say, yes. But again you got to wait. You're getting ahead of God. Read the end of the book. The Son will come in judgment because that authority has been given to Him. We also know that the coming judgment is certain. That is, it is still coming. It's not past. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says... Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And again, you, when, you, when you study that out, the day of the Lord is the day of judgment. That's the day when this age ends and the age to come begins. The day of the Lord. And Paul writes, don't let anyone fool you. Don't be startled. Don't be tricked by people who say that's already happened. And if that verse is going to remain relevant and teachable today, then that means that there can't have been a time in the past where... This has already happened. Where we would say, well, maybe He has already come. And 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2, well, we can just throw that out now because it's already happened. The judgment has not yet come. The ultimate final judgment by the Son of Man is certain to come because Jesus said it would, because God is just, because man is sinful, because the Father has given all authority to the Son, and because it hasn't happened yet. If it hasn't happened yet, then it must most certainly be to come. Now, for the believer, that's comfort. That's, that is our great hope. We will see our King. Our enemies will be vanquished. 
all of the wrongs that have been done to us and to anyone will be made right. No wrong, no sin ever committed will be left unaddressed. All of the injustices of the world will receive their due reward. Every murder, every molestation, every abortion, every race-based violent act will be addressed with perfect, precise judgment. They will be avenged. All of creation will be renewed by fire and then we will spend eternity with our Savior. That's encouragement. But for the unbeliever, this, is, this should be cause for alarm. Self-examination. Are you prepared to stand in the judgment? How will you fare on that day? You know God is just and you know you're sinful. So what will be the verdict when you stand in the coming judgment? Because the coming judgment is certain. We don't have to wonder. Secondly, we see in this verse the manner of the coming judgment. When the time for the coming judgment is upon us, regardless of what many have taught, the manner of its arrival will be sudden and global. It will be the most breathtaking, ear-piercing, cataclysmic event this universe has ever experienced. Now, if you were raised in church and the end times, the quote, end times were addressed very often, you were probably taught the idea of this secret rapture. This view that was, uh, and the system of theology spawned from it, uh, popularized by John Nelson Darby, C.I. Schofield, and the Schofield Study Bible, left behind novels and movies. This idea has left most of us with this picture that we're going to be sitting across the table with someone at some point, and all of a sudden, we're just going to be snatched away, and they're going to be sitting there looking at our clothes and, and wondering where we went. And that teaching, because it has ravaged most of evangelicalism, and especially in America, has blinded the majority of Christians from even listening to biblical truth or, or even taking a discerning look at what the Bible teaches. If you would seek to contradict that, you're, you're, you're labeled as a heretic. You, well, you just don't read your Bible because it's become so ingrained. We were raised with this notion that the times would get tough, but those who belong to Christ, before it gets too tough, well, we'll be snatched out and everybody will be left looking at our cars and wandering through our houses and taking our money and looking at our clothes and things like that. But notice what Christ says. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. This one and only second coming of Christ, there's just one, in judgment will be breathtaking, ear-piercing, sudden, global, and cataclysmic. It will be breathtaking. Jesus says the Son of Man will come with His angels in the glory of His Father. The Lord will, turn, will return with a, a vast host of heavenly angels. He will return in the unapproachable, indescribable radiance of all of the divine perfections of the Godhead with this army of angels. I want to read for you several passages of Scripture. And a lot of this today is, 
is, is almost us building a biblical theology of the coming judgment. In Isaiah chapter 66, verses 15 through 16, we read this. And as I read this, just try to wrap your mind around what this will be like. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger in fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by His sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. In Matthew chapter 13, we studied this in that parable. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-8, through Since indeed God considers it just, again, there's the justice of God, to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when, and here's, here's when all of that's going to happen, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Again in Jude verses 14 and 15, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they may have or that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them are you seeing that picture can you begin to imagine what that scene will be like when the heavens split when the unapproachable light of God's glory slices through the clouds and myriads upon myriads of heavenly angels fill the skies coming and riding in the consuming fire of God's glory and they reap the harvest of Christ's kingdom. That will be a breathtaking event in, in the truest sense of the word. This event will also be ear-piercing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, we read, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We have a cry of command, which would have been similar to a war shout, as the commander of the armies of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah Sabaoth, shouts the command to His units, his, his angels, to go out and reap the harvest. We'll have the voice of an archangel, one of the supremely angelic beings, shouting. I, I imagine almost as if he's, he's received the command from the Lord and then He's relaying the command to these ten thousands of angels. And then we have the sound of the trumpet of God. You'll remember at Mount Sinai when, when that mountain was wrapped in smoke 
And God descended on the mountain and it was wrapped in smoke and fire and there were thunders and, and peals of lightning and the sound of a trumpet. And the people backed up because they were afraid. In the Old Testament, the, the trumpet was given several different distinct sounds. All of the, the, these, these uh, playings of the trumpet used to assemble God's people for gathered assemblies, to draw them all together, to let them know now is the time to gather in the presence of God. And so we'll have the trumpet of God that will be blasted to summon all of the elect who have ever lived into the assembly of the firstborn. This will not be quiet or secret. People will not wonder if it happened because it will be ear-piercing. It will also be sudden. Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father also. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew chapter 25, verse 13, Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now these analogies are not given to us to teach that it's going to be secret, like a thief sneaking in. They're given to us to let us know it will be sudden. It will be unexpected. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. It will happen in a moment. That's a span of time that cannot be divided into a smaller unit. The twinkling of an eye, the, the little flicker of your eyeball as it moves from side to side, that Sudden of a moment is, when, is how long this will happen or how long it will take for this to take place. That means there's going to be no preparation. There will be no getting ready. And there will be no calling your family together and say, well, let's, let's all get together and go to heaven. There will be no calling your wife from work and saying, honey, the, the second coming's here. You better be ready. There will be no calling your children in from the yard as they're playing. Come in, kids. The second coming's here. There won't be enough time for any of that. The coming judgment will be upon us so quickly that there will be no preparations. It will be sudden. It will also be global. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. Every eye, from every time and every place, will be able to watch the second coming 
of the Son of Man in judgment. All that we've seen so far. It's, it's ear-piercing sound. It's suddenness. It's, it's ferociousness will all be experienced by all people everywhere all over the globe. In other words, this will be nothing short of cataclysmic. Listen again to the way Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. See, there's no other way to describe the return of the King who's over all kings and the Lord who's over all lords than to say it's cataclysmic. As He comes to vanquish His enemies and bring justice to the earth, that will be the manner of His coming. So it is certain and the manner will be cataclysmic. Thirdly, we see the individuality of the coming judgment. When the time comes, every person who has ever lived will be judged, and we will all stand alone before the judge of all the earth. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and, he, and then He will repay each person. Every individual person. Psalm 62 verse 12 says, For you will render to a man according to his work. Romans chapter 2 verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. Romans chapter 14, the end of verse 10 going through verse 12, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Now some people think because of their nationality that they'll just be escorted in. When you get to the gate, just hold up your, your Jewish card and you'll be instructed, okay, well you just, you just go on through this door, everybody else stay over here. That's not the case. It's not going to matter your nationality when the judgment comes. As John the Baptist told the Pharisees, do not think to yourselves that because you have Abraham as your forefather that you can enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, God's able to raise from stones children for Abraham. And I heard this week, God, when it come, came to our redemption, God could have just as easily made new people. And it would have cost Him less than to redeem us. It's not because of who you are or where you're from. You will stand alone before the judgment seat of God. You will not be able to stand with your parents or your grandparents. You will not be able to stand with your church 
Or hand over your church card or your, your church bulletin to prove, oh, I went to church. You'll not be able to stand with your pastor who will say, well, as far as I could tell, they were a great church member. That won't happen. You will not be able to stand beside your spouse who can vouch for you and say, well, I know he really tried or I know she really meant well in her heart because you will not stand with your spouse. Your children will not be able to bashfully cower behind your leg in the judgment and you will not be able to walk them out in the judgment before God because they're trembling in fear. They will stand alone before the judgment seat of God. There will be no friendly advocates. There will be no lawyers. There will be no vouching, no letters of recommendation. No references will be called. You will stand alone. So are you prepared for that? To stand alone. Ask yourself, is my spouse prepared for that? Men, it's our job to make sure our wives are ready for that day. Above and beyond tomorrow or Friday or the weekend, it is our job to make sure they are ready for that day. Are your children prepared for that day? We've got to make sure that they are ready. I told the men yesterday, my job for my children is to get them old and then get them to the judgment where they can stand and be ready to give an account. And maybe sometime in, in, in all of that, I can focus on their happiness and, and buy them things and, and give them earthly joy, but that's not my primary duty. It's to prepare them to stand by themselves in the judgment. So the judgment will be on an individual basis. And then fourthly, we see the basis of the coming judgment. According to Scripture, every individual will have their lives evaluated according to the deeds they committed in their lives. Jesus says it very plainly. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and He will repay each person according to what He has done. If that's not clear enough, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 23, All the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And we have the, the whole scene laid out for us in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it. From His presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now let's trace our theme from verse 23. Because it carries through. Have you... Set your mind on the things of man. Did you gratify yourself 
Did you reject any type of, of cross, of public humiliation and shame and death to yourself? Did you seek to protect your earthly life and your earthly possessions? Did you seek to gain the world? Then when you stand alone in the judgment, you will be judged and repaid accordingly. On the other hand, did you set your mind on the things of God? Did you deny yourself? Did you take up your cross? Did you give up earthly desires for the sake of Christ? Did you give up the world? Did you devote yourself to, to making sure that your soul is prepared? Then you will be judged accordingly. Now notice it does not say, and I did not say, that we will be justified or declared righteous before God on behalf of our deeds. We know that we, will be, we are only justified by the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us, but our deeds will display whether or not we had been born again and declared righteous. And last week, I think it was, I said, if, if your brand of Christianity is not the type that changes the way you live and act, it's not biblical Christianity. That's heresy. We will stand and we will be judged on the basis of our deeds. On that great and awesome day of the Lord, we will individually stand before the judgment seat of Christ and every tree will be judged by its fruit. Every heart will be judged by what came out of the mouth. All of our actions will be judged by the attitudes of our hearts. will be judged based on our deeds. So let me ask... When you meditate, when you, when you consider that, the certainty of the coming judgment, the manner of the coming judgment, the, the individuality of the coming judgment, and the basis on which you will be judged, are you greatly encouraged? Are you excited? Are you looking for? Does that give you hope? Does that push you on towards tomorrow? Because if you're in Christ, here's the truth, you, you realize... That this world, although it is alluring and it is enticing and we want to take part in it, it's not all that there is. And so you deny yourself, but it's difficult. And you take up your cross and you follow Christ and you, you die to yourself for Christ's sake, but it requires faith every day and you're struggling and it's difficult and you wonder sometimes, man, I'm only 30 years old. Can I make it another 60, 70 years like this if I live to be 100 which we probably won't. Can I, how much longer can I go? Is it really worth all that I'm going through? Or maybe you watch the news and you see murders and riots and, and scenes that look like they're from movies, but they're actually in the streets of our nation. And you see crowds who will gather together with picket signs and they will chant for their rights of perversion the chant for the rights to murder unborn children. You look around the world and you see nations subdued by tyrannical leaders. Christians persecuted, arrested, imprisoned around the globe and you say, where is all the justice? Or even worse, what is this world going to be like for my children? How long can this planet continue on this trajectory? Well, here's your hope. The Son of Man will come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. The Lord Jesus will return on the cloud, clouds just like He 
descended. And He's not going to come as a lamb who has been slain. He will come as the lion of the tribe of Judah and He will come in conquest. He will lay waste to His enemies. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. When John tries to describe the fruit of this conquest, he says the blood will flow as deep as a horse's bridle as he tramples his enemies. Every eye will see it, every ear will hear it, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess on that day, that's the king. I thought I was the king, or I thought that was the king, or I thought that was my leader, but now I bow and say, that is the king. This is encouragement for those of us who have given up houses and lands and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and careers and dreams and aspirations for the sake of the gospel. Because when that day comes, it won't matter what you gained in this life. It will will not amount to anything. The only thing that will matter is whose side are you on? We'll be on the side of the king. But if you're not in Christ, if you've not been born again, then here's your warning. The Son of Man will come again with His angels in the glory of His Father. And He is going to repay every individual person according to their deeds. So are you prepared for that? Are you prepared to give an account for your life? Because you will. We all will. If you remain in Adam, then your deeds as good as they might be, they will simply be, be gathered together as kindling for your condemnation. But if you will repent and turn to Christ and seek His mercy, His righteousness will be given to you. And then your sinful deeds are carried away. They're forgotten. And all of your good deeds will act as ornaments to His perfection. Not adding to His perfections, but merely earning an exceedingly great reward, which you will then turn and lay at His feet. So this is the question that we ask ourselves as we come to the Lord's table. Am I in Christ and this encouraging, or am I in Adam and this fearful? Does it strike fear in my heart because I'm not ready, or is it encouraging because I am ready? And let's, to be honest, even if you are ready, it's still fearful, it's still breathtaking, it's still sudden, it's still cataclysmic. We should have a right and proper fear of God, but we're not afraid because of condemnation. We fear because we know God, but if you fear because you're not ready, then that means you're in Adam. If you are in Christ, then come to His table and fellowship with Him. See, here we we dine with Him, and on that day, He's going to come back, and He's going to set up a table, and we are going to dine with Him physically in the flesh again. And it is this great hope, with this great hope, that we come to the Lord's Supper. So as the elements are are being distributed.